0: Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, if I can have your attention, please. Um, I'm delighted uh, to welcome you all to, this is uh, the latest uh, event in the LSE European Institute's uh, Perspectives on Europe um, Public Lecture Series. And I'm pleased to say that this event is being held in association with the Franco-British Council. Uh, The Twitter hashtag, I'm told for this event, um, is hash LSE Europe. As you know, the reason you're turned out in such um, wonderful numbers today is to uh, listen to our uh, very special guest, our very distinguished guest, uh, Alain Juppé. And as I'm sure uh, you all know, um, uh, he is someone who has held um, the most senior offices in the French state, um, including budget, um, foreign affairs, uh, on two occasions. Uh, When I recall um, at a time when I was working for our then Foreign Secretary, Douglas Hurd, who I'm delighted to see in the front row here, Uh, when British-French cooperation and foreign policy uh, was something that was deemed of utmost importance by the two countries uh, and where the two foreign ministers worked particularly closely and effectively together. And speaking as a Brit, that's something that gave me enormous uh, pleasure at the time. As well as foreign affairs, um, Alain Juppé has also uh, been responsible for environment, for for, uh, defense, and of course he was prime minister. Um, and between 1995 and 1997. Uh, Apart from uh, all his, uh, very di- his very distinguished uh, political, uh, his ministerial career to date, of course, he's also been a, an absolutely uh, pivotal figure um, in uh, party politics and the organization of the French center-right. Um, he was Secretary General and then President uh, of the RPR for many, many years, the Rassemblement pour la République, and then he was president of l'Union pour un Mouvement Populaire for the UMP between 2002 and uh, 2004. And uh, finally, just in the course of this very short introduction, uh, in a very in a famously centralized uh, country, but where local roots and profile and standing count for a lot, um, Alain Juppé was, um, um, and still is, uh, mayor of Bordeaux. He was mayor of Bordeaux between 1995 and 2004, and again since 2006. And I think there are a few politicians, um, certainly in France and possibly um, widely across Europe, who are so identified uh, with a city as Alain Juppé is with, um, with Bordeaux. Well, the title of Alain Juppé's uh, lecture is up there. And uh, it almost reads as though we're to expect a sort of profession de foi uh, from him. Anyway, certainly the European project uh, needs all the help it can get at the moment, as does the euro itself. And there's almost maybe a slight play on words in the sort of uh, euro-optimist, I I don't know. Um, And certainly there are a few more intellectually distinguished sources for such help um, uh, than Alain Juppé. So, Mr. Juppé, we very much look forward to hearing what you're going to uh, uh, have to say to us. As per our normal format, we will take uh, questions afterwards, um, and we'll probably wrap up round about quarter to eight. So, um, uh, Alain Juppé, I'm sure you'll all want to offer, extend a very warm welcome in best LSE tradition to Alain Juppé.
1: Thank you, dear Professor Fraser, dear Ambassador Bernard Emier, dear colleague Douglas Hurd. I remember very well our collaboration in, uh, between 1993 and 1995 when the former Yugoslavia uh, was uh, at war. It was a very difficult period, and our relationship was excellent at the time. And thank you for coming today. Dear students uh, of the London School of Economics and uh, Political Science, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor and pleasure to be today uh, in this prestigious institution and in front of such a numerous uh, attendants. I am in London today in my capacity of mayor of Bordeaux, as you have said, dear professor, and this morning we visited two uh, football stadiums Arsenal Stadium, the old one and the new one, because they have the same problematic in uh, Bordeaux, how to build a new stadium and what to do with the old one. And this visit was very fruitful for us, and I think I will go back to France and to Bordeaux with uh, very good ideas. Uh, I would like to thank Professor Fraser and the LSE for inviting me today to make the case for Europe. My topic, why I am a Euro optimist, may sound a a little provocative, and especially here in Britain. (laughs) And I am perfectly aware that it is easier today to be a Eurosceptic doom and gloom is the expression that comes to mind. Every day, we hear about the crisis of the European Union, how Europe has been weakened, how its people have distanced themselves from it, from its goals, and from its plans. First in line is uh, the sovereign debt crisis, of course. Recession hits hard. Austerity measures are imposed on member states. Euro austerity has grown and is directed to us towards Brussels, its proverbial bureaucrats, even between member states themselves. Second matter of concern, lack of competitiveness. Europe lags beyond. The Commission's recent forecast shows a recession of 0.3% in the Eurozone this year. Meanwhile, other parts of the world are picking up. And third, democratic gap. This is an old issue, but the current euro crisis has reinforced this feeling. The population of Europe resent that drastic measures are being forced upon them by a foreign, distant power located in Brussels, maybe in Berlin. Most of all, they feel that their destiny has been taken away from them. A political crisis has now come on top of the economic and monetary troubles. Governments are changed by circumstances, and there is a feeling that uh, choosing your leaders Is now dictated by others. Populist parties, left and right, thrive and now gather between 15 to 30 percent of the vote in some member states as recently in Italy, a country which is in a complete political deadlock. Finally, and paradoxically, there is another and different disenchantment. Those who Our board hopes of a stronger Europe in the early 20s, at the time of the European Constitution, also feel disappointed. The European Union is as divided as ever on the international scene, for example, about Libya or today about Mali. The community security and defense policy has not made any serious headway. Having said that, I would like to convince you why I still believe the European Union is the best option for our continent and our own countries, and I am perfectly aware that it will be a difficult job to do so this afternoon. First, from an economic point of view, There is no denying that the current situation is extremely worrying and that we are going through very difficult times. I believe we can no longer speak of a crisis, in fact. We actually are entering a completely new era and a new world. And I would like to stress that I do not believe that this situation is only a distant consequence of an external cause I mean the original American subprime crisis. Why it is an undisputable fact that the US financial turmoil turned into a real economic crisis and then spread to Europe, this alone does not explain the current European quagmire. I will argue that Member States themselves bear some responsibility through their national policy. They have deferred structural reforms, they have let deficits increase, and public expenditures explode. Meanwhile, the EU has acted as a safeguard and a protector of the citizens against an even worse fate. Western leaders have in fact reacted rather similarly when faced with the economic turmoil. States were called to the rescue on both sides of the Atlantic and of the Channel. Government decided to save banks, and that means the citizen savings, of course, as well as automobile giants in the U.S. These bailouts, in turn, forced the states to go into debt on the markets. Bailouts were performed at the cost of further deterioration in the public accounts. In my view, there was no alternative to state bailouts. But at the same time, I do not see the EU as a failure in this period. On the contrary, I am convinced that it is because the EU was and still is an economic heavyweight, the first economic space in the world, that landers came on board and bailouts bailouts were carried out. I believe that, had we not been part of the European Union, Greece and other countries, and perhaps our whole continent, would be far worse off today. Solidarity does exist in Europe. It does mean something, something very simple. United we stand, divided we fall. I know that uh, in some parts of the EU, People resent that their taxes are used to bail out governments on the other side of the continent. I think this is a quotation of Prime Minister Cameron's speech. (laughs) Allow me to say that it is, in my view, a short-sighted reading of the situation. What leaders did was in everyone's interest, our common interest on the continent, Letting Greece and Spain or Ireland sink deeper was not an option, and that was because the domino effect would have been inevitable. Had we not adopted the euro as a common currency, what would have become of the national currency? The drachma, the peseta, even the French franc. The French franc was under attack not so long ago, in the early 90s, and I I perfectly remember my situation when I was Prime Minister in 1995. At that time, the governor of the French Central Bank was named Jean-Claude Trichet, and it was in the antichambre of my office. And he told me every, every day, "If you don't do something, the franc, uh, excuse me, is dropping down." There is still occasionally some speculation against our uh, euro. And I will venture to say that the euro, in my view, represented a major protection for many of us in the last year, in the last five years. I am also convinced that we all made the right decision to put our financial affairs in order and begin to reduce our fiscal deficits. This is the paradox of this crisis. Steps have now been taken, and they are for the better. These measures are indeed long overdue for some of us. European states have lived beyond their means for far too long. And I emphasize the world states. This was a national responsibility. If anything, the EU has always advocated fiscal prudence. Many politicians in my country criticized the 3 per cent obsession at a time when, on the contrary, they should have launched courageous reforms because of the positive economic cycle. And we had to manage the reform of our pension system, for example, while coping at the same time with the economic downturn. And it was the responsibility of President Sarkozy to do so. Today, debt figures are still rising and growth remains sluggish. As far as the two countries are concerned, Britain has lost its, its AAA credit rating, and France will miss its growth target for 2013 and its GDP deficit goal of 3%. Critics from each side could argue that the other's policy has failed, austerity on the one hand and reluctance to deal with the problem on the other. <coughs> regardless, we always return to the same idea, budgetary responsibility, known as the golden rule for balancing budget. Who pushed for the golden rule? The EU did. And my conviction is that this golden rule is not only due to the pressure of union. It's a common sense uh, obligation for us. We can continue to expend more than we earn, and to increase our deficit, because the spiral of the debt is deteriorating, of course. I would also argue that this turmoil has produced an unexpected benefit. It has helped the Eurozone move forward and make new progresses towards a common economic government of the area. It has driven us to adopt a common banking supervision. It was not um, easy to Uh, forecast uh, two or three years ago. It has given us a renewed sense of fiscal discipline, of the necessity of a collective approach, and a renewed solidarity. Same thing for competitiveness. I am glad to see that in France today, everybody agrees that competitiveness is indeed an issue and should be top priority. It wasn't the case during the last electoral campaign when this word, competitiveness, was not been pronounced by some candidates. Um, but I am in presence of the French ambassador today, so I decided to be very moderate on my appreciation of the French policy, of the policy of the present government. I often flag this issue of competitiveness during last presidential campaign. Improving competitiveness is key, even if the word is very difficult to pronounce in France, in French, like in English, and, do not, and doesn't uh, speak to our fellow citizens. What can the EU do about its own competitiveness? If we look at the last EU multi-annual budget, what we call the MFF, multi-annual financial framework, one can argue that it is not amb- as ambitious as it could be regarding competitiveness. And in fact, sub 1A competitiveness amounts to €125 billion for a period of six years. A, it is a very, very tiny amount of money. Even if it represents an increase of more than 37% compared to the previous MFF it is only 13% of uh, overall expenditure in a budget, which itself represents 1% of uh, the overall GDP uh, of the European uh, Union. This is a budgetary tool, and uh, as I've just said, an EU budget representing 1% of the European gross national income and financed up 75% by impoverished member states cannot solve the problem by itself. Growth must come first and foremost from the private sector. And in that respect, the EU is not the problem. Quite the contrary, through the years, the single market, which is a very great achievement of the European construction has been beneficial to all member states. European economic integration has created prosperity for its members for the last five decades. All statistics confirm this. On the other hand, it is true that the EU must be careful to avoid becoming an hindrance through an excessive amount of norms, standards and regulation. This can only discourage private initiative and induce a negative impact on cost. And I agree with your Prime Minister when he says that Brussels and uh, the EU governance needs structural reforms to avoid this uh, bureaucracy and this excess of regulation and standards. I believe that there are some options for further steps at the European level One is fiscal integration and tax harmonization throughout Europe. One cannot avoid this issue. As long as tax policies differ so widely amongst member states, we will not enjoy a complete and efficient single market. Delocalization will always be a problem, not simply an economic one, but also a social and political one, at the roots of the citizen disenchantment with the EU. But, of course, unanimity is required in this area, and we need to tackle this problem, especially on this side of the channel, of course. Another possibility is to move forward towards new resources for the EU budget. There is some merit to the tax on financial transactions. First. It is an enhanced cooperation, as the treaty says, a fundamental principle for the EU, in my opinion. And second, it constitutes a fair contribution of the financial sector to the solution of our problems. Instead of blaming the EU for our economic woes, as most extremist parties now do in continental Europe, we must reinforce the economic government of our common space and coordinate our tax policies. But in order to do that, Member States must accept to delegate further parts of their sovereignty to the Union. I know that uh, this issue is particularly sensitive here and often linked to the lack of democracy of democratic accountability in Europe, and that's true. Nothing new here. The European citizens have little knowledge of, let alone confidence in, the European institutions. Opinion poll, and I quote the Eurobarometer, from 2007 to 2012, figures for trusting the EU institution decreased from uh, 52% to 30%. This growing discontent, which fuels Euro-scepticism and populist parties throughout Europe, must be addressed. Again, I will not deny the facts and the figures. However, we must balance our presentation. In truth, the reality is more complex. Behind this uh, Euro-hostility lies another fundamental trend, and a positive one, Europeans, in their majority, still have a sense that they cannot weather the storm individually and outside the EU. The same Eurobarometer tells us that around 40% of Europeans think that the EU is going in the right direction in order to overcome the current crisis and face global challenges. This is more than those who think the opposite at 30%. In my view, here lies another paradox. People blame the EU for their woes, but they also know, deep inside, that the European framework is the only realistic ensemble when it comes to facing a revolution of this magnitude. At the international level, the G20 has proved one thing. Major economies must tackle the problem together if they are to succeed. Therefore, the European Union as a coordinated and integrated system is key in this European challenge. As far as the democratic deficit of the EU is concerned, I would like to underline that the powers of the European Parliament have increased over the years. In the Lisbon Treaty, special arrangements are made to help national parliaments become more closely involved in the work of the Union and act as watchdogs to the principle of subsidiarity. The new European Citizen Initiative has been introduce, introduced. One million citizens from a significant number of member states may take an in, the initiative of inviting the Commission to submit a proposal. Those progress, and especially the increase of the power of the European Parliament, which is now in a situation of co-decision with the Council on the many matters, However, may seem small compared to the enormous challenge of winning back the hearts of our citizens. I am not convinced that these changes have been perceived by the European voters and made an impact. Only time and election, maybe next election in 2014, will tell. Finally, a brief word on the chapter of international scene. It is often said that uh, the EU is an economic giant and a political dwarf. I agree that the EU should play a more dominant role, but in order to do that, it needs to be united. It needs its major players, Germany, France, Great Britain, the UK, to work more closely together. France and the UK are the only two European permanent members of the UN Security Council. Amongst Europeans, they lay claim to a role in global affairs. Germany is a different case. Its economic weight makes it a global player indeed. On the political side, Germany could and should be a permanent member of the UN Security Council. France supports its candidacy in the framework of an overall reform of the UN and we are as far supportive of this enlargement of the Security Council as we know that uh, for the moment it is impossible because uh, the conditions are not met to uh, implement this reform. Again, let's speak frankly. Foreign policy is still very much a state matter. We are making progress towards a common foreign policy, and we do discuss our position at foreign ministers' meeting, but obviously, strong differences sometimes remain. Libya, between France and Germany. Mali, France, and most of its partners, even if uh, Britain uh, gave to this French intervention uh, quick and efficient uh, support, and thank you for that. Um, on top of that lies a very cumbersome European machinery one that is not adapted to acting and reacting quickly in times of trouble as the Malik case just showed during my period in the Quai uh, during the last two years I have been a supporter of uh, the high representative of uh, the EU on the international scene Lady Ashton and uh, for me, it was a real challenge to convince my colleagues and mainly the journalists and the French press that our new system is really efficient. In spite of all of this, we Europeans can and should push for a stronger European presence on the international scene because it is our best interest. In world trade negotiations, for example, we are heavyweight. One voice is heard because we speak as one, as the EU, and Lord Mandelson could tell you that better than I. The current deadlock, the deadlock of the Doha round, largely due to the demands of emerging countries, should not deter us. Another example is the Middle East process. I am fully aware that this is a very complex subject, but the EU is by far the largest donor in this conflict, Yet, we have not translated this economic power into political power. We could be the mediator, the honest broker in the conflict. The USA has taken a step back on this issue in the last couple of years. All the parameters are well known. The EU and its leadership need to step up and take the initiative. To conclude, all is not lost for the EU on the international scene. EU sanctions do have an effect. Iran. The EU, for all its flaws and weaknesses, can act collectively and influence certain global issues, such as climate change. We are also slowly, very slowly, but surely, building on defense and security policy. France and the UK are indeed leaders in this sector. I agree that there is much scope for improvement in this area, but again, time will tell, and uh, it will be for us a very difficult challenge because uh, during the next year, we'll see that uh, the uh, United States are not ready to continue to pay for our defense and security. And so we have to assume our own responsibility and to build a capacity of defense and security by uh, ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned earlier, we should no longer speak of a crisis. We should instead speak in terms of a brand new world. I do not believe that in this new era, globalization will put an end to the European enterprise or make it irrelevant. On the contrary, I am convinced that today we actually need more Europe. This may come as a shock to some, but I used to say, We have gone too far into European integration not to go further. We need to make new leaps forward in terms of economic, budgetary and fiscal governance. We need to forge ahead towards a truly integrated energy policy for our continent. We need to forge ahead to build a solid common security and defence policy, one that goes beyond declaration of intent, one that guarantees the security of our continent, and makes us a respected player on the international scene. And finally, we need a strong political goal, and this goal should be to give the EU the capacity of uh, playing a political role on the international scene. The question is, is there a will to proceed along this line amongst Europeans? I don't want to decept you, but uh, I should say probably not today. Not in a union with 28 member states, perhaps one day, and I hope that we will reopen the debate about the avant-garde of the European Union, or what we call the noyau dur, the hardcore, as we say in France. And at this time, I do not think that the conditions are met for such a debate, however, Utopia is what makes us dream. It is what drives us. We need utopia. So let's continue to dream, hope and work for the best of our European continent. It is my personal faith. Thank you for your attention.
0: Well, um, uh, Mr. Juppé, um, thank you very much for delivering, uh, for giving us such a, a rich and wide-ranging talk, and also for delivering such a clear and ringing message uh, in this institution. And uh, uh, we, uh, you gave us an excellent, um, an excellent uh, half hour. Um, if I may just very briefly, and I mean briefly, I think, exercise just uh, Chairman's uh, prerogative, just to put a couple of questions which are very sort of linked uh, to you if I may. Um, And they relate to two of your sort of more sort of economic themes, tax harmonization and competitiveness. And um, I'm afraid I'm going to be tediously uh, sort of uh, Anglo-Saxon and uh, I guess as what the French would call Libéral, and one of two of the questions I want to put to you, and that I speak as a strong pro-European and somebody on the same side of the political barricades as you. But you talked, one thing you mentioned was tax harmonization, and I've always been puzzled uh, by France's enthusiasm for tax harmonization, and now perhaps you can actually explain to me uh, the logic of it. You pointed out quite correctly that uh, changes in tax policy at EU level would require uh, unanimity, Um, And that alone um, imposes, uh, presents a a serious obstacle. But it's been quite clear for a long time, in spite of France's best efforts, uh, that there is um, a clear sort of political intellectual majority, if you like, in the EU uh, against harmonization, say, of company taxes. So France periodically raises the issue, and they say, well, we'll do it in a voluntary way or coordinate a bit with the Germans and so on, gives up quite quickly because the Central and East European countries and other countries like Ireland, for example, and many other countries want to be able to exploit their competitive advantage in good sort of Adam Smith way. And you've talked about competitiveness, and I wonder what the link is there. So it hasn't happened. Um, I'm not sure what the logic of it is. I'm sorry to be so provocative, but I wonder perhaps you can let us a little bit more into French thinking, both about the logic of it and, and also its possibility. The other thing was competitiveness. And I've been, I've been fascinated by the extent to which competitiveness, particularly on the centre-right, has become the, the key theme in, in, in France. And perhaps the last year, 18 months, certainly in the, in, in the sort of run-up to the uh, elections. And, of course, a key part of competitiveness is going to be as, is investing in skills, um, it's supporting SMEs, it's supporting innovation, research and development, and so on. But I think at the end of the day, um, most people would... would uh, Except uh, or tend towards the view that compared with some of the more controversial and deep-seated structural economic reforms, like labor market reform, like, in the case of France, perhaps shrinking the size of national income that the state takes, uh, as I say I'm sorry to be so boringly uh, British on these, uh, these sort of questions but uh, I'm sure you must have been anticipating them to an extent doesn't this sort of get to the hub of the matter and competitiveness is a nice sort of euphemism for the sort of the liberal or the, sort of the more radical terminology which difficult reform requires in France it, who, could com- who could object to Uh, improving competitiveness. Uh, It doesn't matter what it's called at the end of the day, but um, do you think there's a real political will for some of the more controversial, some of the more difficult uh, structural reforms that um, many believe France still needs to undertake? Uh, Whether it's called improving competitiveness or whatever is in in a way sort of a bit of a a sideshow. But anyway, thank you.
1: Thank you. Some short remarks. First, uh, on liberalism. Uh, The Gaullist Party has the reputation to be a deregist and not a real Liberal Party. I think it's not true. And the first decision of General De Gaulle when he came back to power in nineteen fifty eight was to implement the Rome Treaty, which uh, relies on free market and the opening of our borders. And at that time uh, the French employers were not very enthusiastic at this perspective, and they are ready to postpone the opening of the common market. De Gaulle decided to do so because he thought that uh, France uh, needed at that time deep, in-depth reform on these economic uh, uh, structures, and what uh, uh, has been done at that time is a very ambitious so-called liberal reforms in the French uh, economy. Second point, tax harmonization. I perfectly uh, understand that it's not time to talk about that here in England when we saw the crazy imagination in France to increase taxes. And so when I am uh, pledging for tax harmonization it's not the idea to propose to you to adopt the French fiscal system. My hope is to convince my dear fellow citizens to uh, slow down this uh, crazy movement and to reduce their Mm. fiscal uh, imagination. Is it possible on the short term? I don't think so. But um, our political experience today has some merits. Uh, And uh, the merit is to open eyes of my fellow citizens on what is a a socialist policy without any limit on on the fiscal uh, aspect of this policy. Uh, Third uh, third point, uh, competitiveness uh, and um, liberalism. Uh, I think that uh, there are three or four key factors of competitiveness. The first one is uh, the quality of the labor force and of human resources. And we have to do in France structural reforms to improve our vocational training system because it doesn't work very well. I meet very often in France uh, managers in uh, small business uh, companies, uh, and they tell me we are looking for uh, salaries for employees. We don't find them because the vocational training system is not able to form them, to train them on the, on the good uh, jobs, on jobs op- opportunity. And so you have a, a first important reform to do. The second factor is uh, innovation and research. And uh, we did a very intelligent thing uh, three years ago on an initiative of President Sarkozy, what we have called le grand emprunt, or uh, more exactly the programme des investissements d'avenir. Uh, this programme has been put on the uh, table by two excellent former prime ministers, one coming from the left, Michel Rocard, and one coming from the right. No, you don't know the name. In France, in France, we call that the Rocard-Juppé committee. <laughs> <coughs> and this program is now fully implemented. It's been very effective because we put money in universities, in laboratories, uh, in uh, the development of some uh, new uh, uh, industrial projects like l'avion du futur or in the digital uh, sector. So I think uh, Europe could do the same thing, and uh, I am very reluctant to the idea of euro bonds But maybe Euro project bonds bonds uh, dedicated to fund a programme of innovation and research could be a factor of competitiveness. The third factor is uh, the reform of the uh, labour market and we have done a step forward in France uh, two weeks ago uh, when uh, the entrepreneurship and the Union uh, agreed on an important reform uh, which will allow the companies to adopt the salaries when there is uh, difficulty in, uh, in, in the market and in, in the situation of the company. Uh, I think it's a good step uh, in the good direction. And then third, uh, f- fourth, excuse me, the fourth factor of competitiveness is labor cost. And uh, that's uh, the point on which we have to do uh, progress. Uh, and uh, there are only one way to uh, lighten uh, fiscal, social taxes on labour costs, is to reduce our public expenditures, and that's the uh, most difficult challenge in France today. Uh, we have created many, many new taxes. Uh, we have imposed the French taxpayers by uh, 33 billion fran- uh, euros. Excuse me, <laughs> the France is there. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I know uh, you're a goal- a, a, goal- goal- rate, a, goal-less, a rate but... Rate. Yes. 33 <laughs> billion euros, and so we have no more margin on the fiscal field, on the field, this fisc- fiscal uh, sector. And so we have to reduce our public expenditures, and it is very difficult. It needs uh, a great political courage, because uh, contrary to what is often said by journalists or by observers, uh, the public money is not wasted like this. Uh, beyond any public expenditure there are citizens benefiting from this money and when we cut those public expenditure they protest of course and so it needs uh, reform, I know that very well because I tried in 1995 uh, and uh, I implemented my my reform of the um, health system but I had to abandoned my project about uh, the retirement system. And it it, it needed more than 10 more years before we uh, are able to implement this reform. This is uh, the situation uh, in France. This is also the situation in Europe. And we have to continue to to develop this competitiveness ambition. I don't know if it is a liberal uh, one or not, What is liberalism today? Uh, It is uh, the conviction that free market is the most efficient way to produce uh, wealth and to create jobs. And I think uh, this idea is largely spread even in one part of the Socialist Party, but it is still a minority part of the party. So we can still hope to convince them.
0: Well, thank you. thank you very much, and uh, I'm sorry that my question's uh, taken up uh, so much time. Good. Okay. Um, uh, we'll start, uh, yeah, questions from the floor. Uh, please, um, please say uh, who you are, what your affiliation is. Uh, please, please keep it short and sweet, and don't try to smuggle the second question in under the cover of the first. Uh, I thought we might start uh, with Europe uh, and maybe bilateral relations, international relations. Uh, If we have a little bit of time towards the end, uh, maybe uh, a little bit more French domestic, uh, maybe even the little local difficulties within the UMP, which um, uh, Mrs. Giupia has had to help sort out. Um, uh, But I'd like to... uh,
1: uh, uh, Please. I came this morning to England to escape the French political (laughs) life. Well, may, maybe we'll spare yeah, you those. To.
0: Maybe we'll spare you those. Um, okay. Um, right. Um, I, shall, I shall bunch of... Please, please keep them short sure and sweet so we can get two more questions. The uh, gentleman in the green um, with his... Um, yeah. Thanks. Um,
1: uh, my name's Michael Williams. I, I teach at the University of Surrey. Do you think there is a case for an elected president of Europe in order to overcome this fundamental problem of the democratic deficit. Uh, as a Gaullist, I would have thought you would be attracted by that idea, thinking back to 1962 and General de Gaulle's referendum on the subject
0: in
2: France. So an elected president <laughs> for Europe.
0: Or the opposite. Um, good, thank you. Okay, another question. Um, uh, yes, uh, gentleman there with a blue scarf. Mr. Juppé, do you fear a possible withdrawal of the UK and after 2015? And what could be, according to you, the impact on Europe? Okay. Thanks very much. Short and sweet so far, certainly. Um, do we have a, a, a lady question? Yes. Uh, the lady. <laughs> I will never, ever be accused of sexism in any variety, shape, or form. Yes, the lady. Yes, yes, the lady there. Thanks very much. Hi, my name is Eloise. I'm a student at the LSE. Um, Mr. Juppé, regarding tax harmonization, what is your insight on the resistance to change of the French population? Resistance, uh, what's your view about the resistance of the French population to tax harmonization? Okay, thank you. We'll stop there, but um, I'll, I'll hopefully pick up quite a few more afterwards.
1: An elected yeah. president of the European Union, I think it's a good idea. But for tomorrow, not for today. Is the British people ready to vote for a French candidate <laughs> to the presidency of the EU? Is the French people ready to vote for a British candidate for the uh, presidency of the EU? I think. Uh, It's a bit earlier uh, to do so, Uh, but uh, it should be our goal at the end of the way. For the moment, I think uh, the most important is to reinforce the democratic legitimacy of the European Parliament and of the Commission. And as you know, in the uh, new treaty, Lisbon Treaty, uh, there is uh, some provision to uh, (coughs) say that the President of the Commission should be chosen among the political party in Europe, which has won the election. And so it's an innovation in our governance, and it will take place next year. So there will be an electoral campaign. There are two main parties in Europe, the PPE, the Parti Populaire Européen, the right party, and the Socialist Party on the left, and so the leader of uh, the, the party which will win the election should be chosen by the head of states as the president of the commission. Maybe it could be a, an improvement in the democratic uh, organization of the, of the EU provided that people uh, are interested in those elections. And you know that uh, the rate of abstention in European election is very high. So we have to campaign. We have all together to convince our fellow citizens that it is a very important choice and it will take place ne- next year. Do we fear uh, the withdrawal of the UK, uh, of, of the European Union? Of course. I think that uh, if we want to build a European Union uh, playing an important role on the international scene with a capacity of uh, assuming its security and defense, it's unimaginable without uh, Great Britain, of course. And that is uh, the mess between, because we can do that without the UK and today it's impossible to do so with the UK. It is a very, very strong challenge. So I understand perfectly uh, the idea of a referendum. It's a choice of the British Prime Minister. I have nothing to say about that. Uh, Just the thing, generally speaking, when you ask a question to a people by a referendum, the, the answer is on other topics that the question you have uh, you have asked. And we experienced that in France in 2005. <laughs> it, was a, it was a referendum about constitution, European constitution, and people answered about uh, the popularity of the government. So it's, it's a risk. Um, uh, but uh, the point on which I agree with uh, Prime Minister Cameron is the fact that the European Union needs... <coughs> in-depth reform Uh, and the organization of the commission today is wasteful, is uh, out of touch, it's bureaucratic and you have to to lighten that and to put more democracy in the functioning of those institutions. It will be very difficult um, but it's absolutely necessary if we want to Reinforce the legitimacy of the of the EU. Tax harmonisation: Are uh, the French people ready to go in that direction? Uh, if it is a, a way for lighten the taxes in France, okay. <laughs> if it is to uh, have a more heavy weight on the shoulders of our taxpayers it will be difficult but it's a, uh, a target uh, uh, which cannot be reached by uh, any process of harmonization it's impossible to increase the level of taxes in France because uh, we are close to to the death of our uh, Uh, economic sector, Uh, the conception has been uh, cut by those uh, uh, increase of taxes. Uh, Investors are waiting for better days and so on. So we have reached the maximum acceptable for economy. And so my perspective is a decrease of uh, tax level in France. It would mean the increase of the level in other countries, and that's the difficulty of uh, the harmonization. But we could start by the harmonization of the basis of our taxes. For example, an harmonized basis for the added value uh, tax, uh, not beginning by the, by the rate of the tax, but by the, mm, the basis. We, we, we say in French, l'assiette. I don't know the English word. Uh, l'assiette uh, de l'impôt. Uh,
0: l'assiette de l'impôt. The plate of the thing, but... Uh, base, the basis. The, the base. The base. The base. Tax base. Base. Of tax base. base. Yep.
1: This is the base. Uh, the, this is my, my answer to your question about tax harmonization.
0: Good. Okay. Next round of uh, questions. Gentleman of the stripey jumper there, thoughtfully had come wearing a stripy jumper and therefore increased his chance of being called. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that. Uh, the competitiveness in Europe must uh, increase. But don't you think that uh, by taxing uh, banking transaction in Europe, you would lead them to be less competitive comparing uh, Anglo-Saxon banks? And then they will relocalize jobs in the United
2: States or in Asia, for instance. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, The gentleman right at the back by the wall. Yeah, thanks very much. (coughs)
1: <coughs> Hello. Uh, my name is Hervé. I'm an LSE student. Uh, in the last uh, the, um, state of funeral, you know, Barack Obama, you raised the, the, the point of the free trade zone between European Union and the US. And my question was, do you think it's the, is a, it is a good idea? Do you think it's going to like dilute the European, European project? Or on the contrary, it will be like a good idea to stimulate the economic growth in Europe and um, create new jobs.
0: Thank you. And, um, and third, uh, the gentleman in the green shirt who's had his hand up tenaciously for a very long time. Uh, yes, the green shirt just there, yeah. Yeah, thanks.
2: Thank you. Uh, John Hume, graduate of London University. Um, I would like to ask how would you persuade an unemployed Spaniard um, or Greek with little prospect of employment to share the vision um, of Europe, particularly if perhaps last year, out of despair, the Greek voted for something like Golden Dawn? Thank you.
1: Tax on financial transaction. I think it is right to, to ask the, our banks to... Uh, Participate in the funding of uh, public expenditures by this tax because their responsibility in the quagmire that we have known in, in, uh, in the world, in the United States and in Europe, uh, is um, a good reason to do so. Is it um, an hindrance to the competitiveness of uh, the financial sectors in, in, in our economy? It depends on the use uh, which will be made uh, with this money. If this money is invested in uh, uh, research, innovation, if this money uh, funds action to develop uh, the competitiveness of our industrial sectors or digital sector, for example, I think that the balance could be a beneficial one for the uh, European economy uh, as a whole. Free trade with the U.S., Uh, I told you that uh, I I am completely convinced of the merits of uh, free market economy, of free enterprise, so I am also convinced of the benefits of free trade. And the single market uh, which created a free trade area between the 27 members of the EU uh, is a very positive achievement. Uh, So uh, I am not reluctant to the idea to do the same with the U.S., provided that uh, we are not naive sometimes it is said that France is a protectionist, protectionist country it's not true we have the same tariffs as uh, other European countries of course because it is a common tariff so we are no more protectionists uh, than others the US are well, the US is excuse me, protectionist when uh, its uh, major interests are at stake and they are very uh, awkward to protect the security sectors and others. And so uh, let us negotiate uh, on the basis of reciprocity. And what uh, for me is a, is, um, a flow in the, in the spirit in which the EU uh, functions is uh, this idea that free competition, pure competition, is the good answer to our problems. Uh, I am not uh, uh, an orthodox uh, fan of uh, this principle. I think we must adapt the situation to the new conditions of the market, of the international market, in a global uh, economy. And, For example, towards China, we have to put on the table this principle of reciprocity and not to... Uh, disarm our economy without any compensation. I think it will be the same thing to do with the U.S. and it will take time to find a good agreement because, because the question is not tariffs with the U.S. It is a health regulation and other uh, provisions who, which protect in fact uh, sometimes the European economy and sometimes the U.S. economy. Uh, the third question was about... Uh, uh, what is the third question about tax base? I can't read okay. again my, my note.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, what would an unemployed Spanish I, Spanish I have, have to say about... Uh, uh, I didn't European visit project. Greece
1: or Spain uh, since a long time, and so I have no the, the answer to this question. Wow. Uh, it's a very difficult one. The, the, the only way to convince... Uh, those people that uh, this is their interest to accept the very, very difficult sacrifices which are um, imposed on their countries is to try to convince them that tomorrow will be better. And it is very difficult to do so. If you think that it's absolutely necessary to put uh, order in uh, their finances, in their fiscal systems, in their administration, Uh, And that those reforms will benefit at the end of the way to the people. So I think uh, it works to accept the sacrifices. But it's easier to say when you are sitting here in this comfortable chair uh, better than uh, we are in the the streets of Greece and, and Spain. So it's a very difficult job. And I have uh, a great admiration for the, the politicians who, who resist to populist party and to uh, and to uh, in those countries. But it's a, it's a challenge for all of us.
0: Good. Okay. Some more some more questions. Uh, yes, uh, Gentleman there in the grey uh, jacket. Um, yeah. Yes, and Douglas.
2: Uh, what do you think the rest of the EU can learn about Nordic model countries like
0: Iceland that have been able to regain a steady GDP growth? Uh, sorry, about Nordic countries who have been able to achieve steady uh, on the basis of their Nordic model, perhaps of flex security and, and yeah. Okay, Why, how do you explain the success of Scandinavians, of, Sc- of the Scandana- of, of Scandinavia? Uh, Lord Hurd, um, just at the front here.
2: Sorry, uh, it's been a great pleasure to be here um, uh, th- 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 this evening. And um, I've been waiting for something, for Alain Luthor to say something with which I passionately disagreed. But I haven't, haven't been uh, able to find anything. I thought he's he put out, uh, he's given a lesson really in how these matters can be presented forcefully but in a reasonable tone of voice. And uh, I think we will need to benefit from those lessons before we are much older Um, could I just ask him a question about the democratic deficit he answered the the question when it was raised before by putting the emphasis on the European Parliament as far as Britain is concerned it has not really entered the roots of our system I don't know how it would be in Bordeaux but you you, you cannot really expect you would not expect um, the average English voter to be familiar with the name or policy of the person who has been elected it's something to do with the political system with the electoral system but there's also a basic deficit at the heart of the, this concept is there any other way in which we can actually overcome that, that difficulty
0: thanks thanks very much um, yes and uh, lady um, in the front with her hand up there uh, in the third row the lady just there. third row thank you Um, I have a follow-on to that question, um, as well as the fact that you mentioned the concept of European citizenship. And I think that many of us students here that may have grown up in France had to take compulsory education civique classes, um, which are civic and political education classes, um, about where we would learn about the formation of Europe, its various treaties, etc. And we're taught to kind of be and think like European citizens. And I was wondering if maybe you thought such education is important, um, or whether you think it is important, and whether you think such classes are necessary um, in countries like the UK to help foster long-term support for the EU.
1: Thanks very much. The Nordic model, it's uh, an interesting model. Uh, Sometimes we say that France uh, uh, gets the record of public expenditures in Europe. It's not exactly true. And uh, Denmark, for example, has a higher level of public expenditure than France with a system based on the, this principle of flexi-security, more security for workers, and more flexibilities for, for business. We are trying to imitate this model in France. We have a large margin of maneuver, of course, to get... The, To to, to reach that goal, but the last agreement between uh, our uh, employer uh, organization and uh, the unions goes in that direction. When I talked about uh, tax harmonization uh, some minutes ago, uh, in fact it it would be very difficult because our, our, for example, comparing France and UK, our systems are very, very different. Uh, In many fields, um, your system is not funded by public uh, expenditures but by private funds. And I take two examples uh, university and uh, health system. It's uh, not so obvious for the health system, but for the university, it's, it's very obvious. What is the best system? I don't know. It would be very difficult to persuade my fellow citizens to pay for going to the university. We tried three or four times in the past and the result was the same. Many, many, many students in the streets of Paris and, uh, and other uh, great cities in France. So that's why uh, over beyond the, the, the fiscal system there is an organization all of the society which is very different between France and Great Britain and other countries. So it's a challenge. Um, second question Can't read my, my notes. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Root of a system. Uh,
0: sorry, I wasn't. Oh, the, uh, the second question was about um, whether no, no, the, a, the European Parliament is the uh, uh, is, is 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 a body. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the European Parliament bridge the democratic deficit. Uh, uh, may I just uh, just just in a very quick interjection I, I, on I, this point. Because uh, I mean, I'm, uh, it's uh, uh, senior French politicians have obviously have often uh, headed off the European Parliament when their term of office has abruptly or for whatever reason come to an end. Uh, so there is that track, if you like, career track. Uh, by the same token, I think with Britain, probably France is the country which has shown the least enthusiasm for the European Parliament and has been most resistant to increase in its powers on a sort of, over the last 30 or 40, year, 40 years. Uh, is there a French schizophrenia here, or maybe the, or that's French right? French, you know. I
1: wrote roots of the system. (laughs) It's a quotation of of, of Douglas. Yes, it's very difficult to involve our uh, citizens in the uh, electoral process for the election of the European Parliament. That's right. In France, we try to change the electoral law and to have uh, different constituencies in the country. Now we have, uh, I don't remember exactly, uh, five or six or or seven uh, constituencies in the idea to... um, have a closer link between the, the members of the parliament and the voters. It doesn't work very well because the constituencies are too large. For example, in my region there are three, three regions going from uh, the Atlantic coast to the Mediterranean. It's very difficult for the, the MP of the parliament to, to have a real presence in that, sequence, in that constituency. How to change that? It's a, it's a very difficult challenge. Maybe if we are really to convince our citizens that what is decided in the parliament is important for their daily life. Uh, at that time, they will go to the, to, to the, the electoral booths to vote. Uh, there is also another way to, to reinforce the democratic legitimacy of the uh, European institution is to strengthen the role of the national parliament. And it is also written in the last uh, treaty of, uh, of Lisbon. Uh, the, the national parliament are more involved in the process and they are as I have said in my, in my speech the watchdogs of the principle of subsidiarity this principle is very important what has, be, has to be done in Brussels and what was, uh, we, we must do at the national level it's a, a very uh, important uh, principle in the, in the governance of the EU uh, third question about education uh, it's uh, very important challenge, of course, and uh, uh, the exchange of, uh, of students, uh, better knowledge between uh, uh, our universities, uh, uh, the Erasmus program, for example, have done a lot for the popularity of Europe, and we have to, to, to go forward in that direction. I would like also to, to underline the importance of uh, uh, the, uh, what we call in France uh, la coopération décentralisée, the decentralized cooperation between cities, uh, sister agreement between cities. I think uh, at that level of cooperation, there is a human dimension which doesn't exist uh, when Brussels is at stake or, or, or national governments. So we have a, a work uh, to do to. to to, to convince uh, our citizens that Europe uh, is a a challenge for for, for the DLR, that Europe is helping uh, some projects in their cities. Uh, in, In my city of Bordeaux, for example, many of my projects have been funded by Europe. And it is not well known by, by, by the, the inhabitants of Bordeaux. So we have to explain to that the reality in the daily life of, of, of the urban construction. It's a, a lot to do, of course. You know, just as a postscript to the
0: question about whether um, learning about the EU should be incorporated into our educational curriculum, it is an extraordinary reflection uh, on the state of the debate about Europe Europe in Britain uh, that it is considered no government would begin to or has occasionally toyed with the idea of actually imparting some basic information about the European Union, say, to, in, in schools, just about how it works. And one would have thought that when the two central planks of British foreign policy, a membership of NATO, membership of the EU, until such time as, God forbid, we should decide to pull out of either of those, one would have thought to be completely unproblematic unpro- to explain just purely factually how the whole thing works. It is inconceivable in this country that the government is going to, uh, as it seems to expend any political capital and co- have the, the fuss and the news, and the media and so on, actually even just to get us to, to that base, uh, unlike just about any other country in the Europe that, uh, that I've looked at. It is quite an extraordinary state of it. You're probably aware of this anyway, but it is really extraordinary. Um, okay. We've got time. Can we take it to The last 10, series of questions. Three. Yeah. What, what, another three? Are you happy yes. to do another three? Okay. Three more questions. Three more questions. Uh, okay. uh, three more questions. Uh, there's a uh, right at the back. Uh, there's a lady, ah. lady at the back. Yes, right up there. Uh, thank you.
2: Hello. My name's Olivia. I'm a former LSE student. And my question to Mr. Juppie is, what do you think are the, the next steps... For the UMP to restore its credibility in the eyes of UMP voters in France today. Thank you.
0: Okay, good one. Thank you. Um, uh, Right. Okay, another question. And right, uh, gentleman right at the back, uh, in fact, I'll say who he is because he uh, organized as much as center right in this country, Stéphane Rambosson, who's sitting right at the back. Yeah.
1: Uh, Stéphane Rambosson, uh, Sciences Po, UMP. Apologies, I had exactly the same I question.
0: Right. I had to. So well done. And, and my question was, will we, the UMP, win through uh, Euro optimism or not? Okay. Not unrelated to the previous question, I have to say. Um, and, uh, uh, and then I shall go to the other side. Um, um, sorry, there's a lady. Yes, about three rows from the back with a hand up. Uh, yes, the dark hair. thank you for your speech I'm a student from LSE uh, France's 3% deficit target has clearly not been met uh, why is this and how do you think that this target can be achieved thank you Okay, um, France's 3% deficit target has not been met France. what, France's it, it, it's attempt to get its public deficit down to 3% has not been met why is this so and what needs to be done to make it happen Well, on the last question... Uh, Okay, ladies and gentlemen, can we... we, Quiet, please. Thank you. We are
1: going back to to my speech and uh, to the economic dimension of this uh, conference. Um, We didn't... uh, We will not reach this target in 2013 for one major reason. Um, The uh, completely... uh, stagnation of our economy. Our forecast was a growth of about 0.8% for this year, and all the forecast today is around 1.1%. And so when the growth is not uh, at the rendezvous, pardon? 0.1%. 0.1%. I I don't know. No, 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 1%, unfortunately. (laughs) 0.1%, of course. And so when the growth is not uh, rendezvous, it means that uh, uh, revenues... Uh, are lower than expected uh, and so uh, it's impossible to reach a target of the reduction of deficit. This is the analysis of the situation. What to do? Uh, It's impossible for the reason I've said before to increase a a lot uh, our taxes, even if some new ideas are on the table for example uh, rising uh, the taxation on diesel. It's a very popular idea among farmers among uh, (laughs) Uh, fishery system and so on. Well, it will be difficult uh, considering that uh, the previous government, including a socialist government, have encouraged French consumers to buy uh, diesel cars, of course, and now we are saying to, to our citizens that uh, the tax will increase. So we have to cut uh, our expenditures and it's very difficult. I am the mayor of uh, very beautiful city, Bordeaux, the most beautiful city in France, as you know. Uh, And the government announced two days ago or three days ago that uh, uh, the um, subsidies coming from the central government to uh, the local government will be reduced by about 4 billion euros during next year's. And so for me, it's a very, very bad news. So it will be difficult to do so, but uh, it, is, it is inevitable to do so. Uh, UMP, UMP, pardon, UMP uh, next step. Uh, what happened in the, in the party at the end of last year was a disaster. I tried to play the role of blue helmet, but uh, it was too early and I didn't succeed since the reconciliation has been sealed between uh, the two protagonists, uh, Copé and Fillon. Uh, And I think that we have now found a stable organization. Uh, It looks like a Mexican army with uh, many, many generals and many (laughs) colonels because all the functions have been divided by two. It can work. Our priority, the next step, is not to choose our champion for 2017. Uh, we have uh, three or, or, or four years left ahead uh, for, for do so. The priority is to work on a new project to propose to the French people because we cannot uh, uh, live on, on the heritage of Sarkozy. Uh, I do not criticize the past. It's not my um, way of considering political life. But we have to uh, innovate, of course, because the world is changing. And what are we proposing for the reduction of uh, our debt, for the competitiveness of France, for the reform of the uh, educational system, uh, for Europe, uh, and so on? This is a priority. Are we uh, able to convince the majority of the French people uh, during the next election uh, with a very Euro-optimist project? This is a quite uh, intelligent question. Um, But we have two ways of considering the political responsibility. The first one is to say to the people what the people is expecting. You are ready to say. Uh, Sometimes it uh, looks like uh, populism and demagoguery. The other way is to propose to the people what you think is good for the country. Uh, It's risky. You can lose the election uh, it's not absolutely impossible to do so with a kind of uh, ability, awkwardness. Hmm? No? Skill. Skill. Uh, skill. Skill to convince the people. So uh, it will be the uh, challenge of the next uh, presidential election in France. But when we campaign for an election, it uh, depends on what we are telling to the people and also on what the people is thinking about your adversary. And on this point, I am very optimistic for the next election in France.
0: Well, ladies and, ge- ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll remember this evening as an evening on which you heard one of the, the most famously cerebral and uncoolly analytic uh, of French politicians urging us to think of urging us to think of utopia and uh, as we can as we make our way home we can ask ourselves did he, did he really mean this uh, or, uh, and, uh, or not and I personally have no reason to believe that you didn't uh, believe, believe this um, or you can reflect on the what 80 odd minutes uh, of, that we've had of, of, of stimulating and thoughtful ideas uh, and commentary from our, uh, from our really outstanding speaker and I'm sure we'll want to show him our appreciation Gracias.